0: You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research.
1: Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have a super awesome guest on the show. I know I say that about all the guests, but I mean all of them are awesome and also this one is particularly awesome. Today we have Ranger Amanda joining us. Welcome to the show, Ranger Amanda. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I, know, I, Look, I normally say this is an easy question. I know it's not an easy question, especially for you. <laughs> Would you like to start with telling us a little bit about what your job is? Absolutely. So obviously it's in the title,
0: ranger, but what does a ranger do and what is my actual job? So I am more specifically a park ranger, which means that I look after protected areas. So I'm responsible for looking after a piece of land set aside for conservation and recreation. There are some other types of rangers, which is why it could be confusing, who might look after doing talks and walks with the public or a community ranger or cultural ranger. So I'm a park ranger who's essentially a land manager looking after conservation and recreation as a farmer is a land manager looking after agriculture and livestock.
1: You made that sound you know, nice and encapsulated and easy. <laughs> Whereabouts are you based?
0: So I'm a ranger in New South Wales with the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. I'm based up here on the north coast of New South Wales. So I work out of an office in Coyogle, which is a tiny little town west of essentially Byron Bay. So I look after parks right near Coyogle going from the border with Queensland down through what's called the Richmond Range, which is a a range of uh, mountains just on the edge of an old volcano which kind of forms the edge of the Great Dividing Range in our part of the world.
1: I mean it sounds beautiful and like one of those dream locations where you know park rangers would fight over to get.
0: Literally is yeah it's (laughs) sort of like someone has to retire to get a job so yeah you jump at the chance and we've actually just done a recruit for one of the other roles and yeah you have people in very high positions applying for this opportunity to be a ranger in this neck of the woods so absolutely blessed I mean my parks are Gondwana World Heritage rainforest I can't complain you know you drive through my parks and you see little patty melons running across the road and bandicoots and dingoes and the old koala you know it's pretty amazing
1: (laughs) you've got all the things
0: this is it this is it
1: can I ask how many people applied for that job? Do you have any idea?
0: Yeah, so this one, because it had specific requirements of a degree or so, over 70 people to whom were internal. So people. So it's hard, hard chance to get a role with this kind of one because of the experience of people. Some people have been rangers for over 15 years who applied and actually didn't get the role. So that's sort of how sought after these roles are. And in such special places as well in the communities up here who are all quite passionate about the environment, makes it extra interesting. And also lots of, you know, world heritage areas, lots of threatened species and being in our part of the world and subtropics, it's really sort of a super important spot ecologically for, you know, climate change and what it will bring to the future. So it's sort of critical work ecologically. So every time there's money thrown at any threatened species, it's generally coming our way and we need to suddenly (laughs) make it happen. So koalas in particular.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. Koalas are, because there's some spots where koalas, there's too many koalas.
0: Yeah. You I'm don't South have the two million dollars? Yeah. So that was definitely most of my ranger experience comes from South Australia and the Adelaide Hills, obviously, where they're actually not native to that area. And you're sort of trying to manage for assisting persistence of koalas within Australia broadly, but also trying to support your parks, which were quite literally being destroyed and, you know, some parts collapsed by these very hungry critters who um, loved it there but weren't unfortunately meant to be there. So it was hard to change the headspace from not getting annoyed when you saw them eating my manigums in my parks to um, loving seeing them up here. They do look quite different though. Luckily, they're quite different looking koalas. That helps where it's a real joy to see them up here. So, And I saw the very first one up here on the north coast in my park, which is kind of special, or one of my parks. So that was great. And it was a bit happier than our ones in South Australia who don't do so well in the heat so they're not very unfortunately healthy koalas so generally when you were dealing with koalas in the Adelaide hills it was because they were unwell and needed assistance so it was a nice change to see koalas healthy and happy and in their intended habitat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's something a lot of people don't necessarily think about is that we sort of go oh Australian animals are Australian Mm -hmm. but the same with plants like there's, there's plants that go from one part of Australia to another and they're not supposed to be there. Like, yeah, we don't often think about koalas being the equivalent of like an exotic species in a location.
0: Yeah, it is a sort of a weird one to get your head around. Um, I mean, there are some success stories where obviously there's parts of Australia where a species has either gone extinct or near extinct and at some time it was introduced to somewhere for out of interest' sake, that's what they did back in the day. They're like, oh, let's let's put koalas here. This would be they'd be nice to see when we're on the back having tea, you know, that sort of thing. And that was generally went very very badly, but occasionally um, they went quite well. So there's a few times like on Kangaroo Island, there's some species there like Cape Brown Geese, which they've introduced, which looks after them even though they're not meant to be there. It worked, you know, where they're able to be. Contained and successful and sustainable on that landscape. It's very rare it works. The one it does, it's great. It's just occasionally it's a complete disaster. Not even you know the classic cane toad example, but as you said, within Australia, when people well-meaning but perhaps didn't have all the full knowledge in the past introduced things such as, you know, eucalypts from Western Australia and planted them in a you know, Blair national park. And they're very pretty. And a lot of our visitors love this one particular tree, which is very pretty. And they're always like, oh, which one is it? And i like, don't plant it. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. It's not, it's not meant to be here. <laughs> but it's, yeah, one of those things where it can work, but sometimes where a species is sort of constrained by the weather and soils and, and the the climate and just the ecosystem of where they are and they work in harmony with other things. When you move them, even a slight difference in one of those things means it takes over from what is there and depending on what's there, that might be a terrible thing. But part of the other on that side of the corn you've got so what we consider horrific weeds like uh blackberry and, and other things that can be amazing habitat and in fact some of our small mammals and other species will absolutely preference the blackberry and just completely ignore your twenty year rebirth effort. So you know it's they're they're picky things and apparently blackberry is more interesting. So it really depends on there's things where Ecologically, we need to be more open-minded We're in the world of climate change and in ecology, it's constantly moving and changing. And so thinking about not giving things labels and just having that sort of a one-track mind about it, which is very hard, particularly for rangers when some of them spend their careers trying to get rid of some species and protect others and they have to shift that thinking. So it's I find it a really fascinating space as a landscape geographer, but a lot of uh, people in our industry struggle <laughs> with letting those things go definitely.
1: I think that's fair. If you spent the last 20, 30, maybe 40 years spraying blackberries to try and get rid of them, and then your cute little, very special native animal is like, this is a lovely home. That would be frustrating.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so suddenly you're managing for this reed you're trying to previously eradicate it. Yeah, it's definitely got to grate a little bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are some of the other like land management, I guess, issues uh, or like points of focus at the moment in your parks
0: uh, well in our parks obviously we've had uh, quite substantial floods and then after the main flood we had some other floods but it was this time wonderfully had the addition of wind and storms <laughs> so the a little bit's flood recovery so when we have quite a significant climatic event or weather event It's everything goes on hold and you turn into sort of disaster management, which we already are well equipped to do and sort of automatically function for fire, which is obviously a constant presence for us because different parts of the state are fire prone throughout the year, particularly in New South Wales and, say, South Australia, for example. So we simply go into that mode, but from a flood perspective. So you move from doing a normal operational side of things of managing your Visitor areas, managing pest plants and animals, and your sort of day to day. To okay, we've closed all of our parks. You go through and assess all of them, work out what do we need to do, what is insurance, what is normal funding. You know, how do we fund those things? And in this particular instance, how do we get them open enough for Easter? That because you can't go to the beaches you can't go in the rivers and that's it's the northern rivers region you know people come up here to swim at beaches and kayak down the rivers and swim surfing, and that's that's part of the pool and so we know that our parks are going to be the old the other option apart from boost first of, all, of course but yeah the main thing that they can do is come and visit our parks so i suppose it was um focusing on trying as much as we could to get Open camping areas so people can stay somewhere, and also have enough recreational options such as walking, where people could go and enjoy the natural environment and get out and go camping, which is you know what Easter is all about for most Australians. Let's go camping. It's the first time it's sort of cool enough. There's generally fewer mozzies, and it's sort of, but it's still nice enough to go for a swim. So it's that perfect time of year. I don't know from living in East Queensland ever so long, it's pretty much you know Ipswich is empty at Easter because it's just this mass exodus where everyone is camping. So. It's been a, a definitely a quick, fast pace, let's try and get things open. And then everything else is on hold during school holidays whilst we check campgrounds, make sure visitors are safe and happy and do what we can. And then after that, we'll be going back to repairs and that sort of thing. So really it's a very much flood recovery, especially as some of us have been impacted by the flooding personally. So it certainly changes staff availability and sort of our capacity and staying you know, mentally safe at work is really important too.
1: You've had a pretty intense period of time.
0: Yeah, definitely. It was not fun being in Melbourne and having to watch the news and my place went under to about 1.5 metres. So there's not a lot of belongings left and I have a new living situation. But, you know, I've got a big trip coming up, so I'm very lucky. But, yeah, some of our staff were rescued from roofs and uh, sort of pretty close calls. So a lot of our neighbours, stakeholders, and particularly our native title holders, we work closely with. On cultural heritage management, you know they've all been quite significantly impacted. So, and obviously with Lismore, it's really tough when you drive through there <laughs> every day to Kaiyugal, and just yeah, the community's pretty devastated and just sort of not there in the one spot they were. So that's certainly impacting on everyone. So it's as much as it's important to get our parks open for the public, we have to you know look after ourselves as well. You know, Definitely to the fires back in 2019, 2020, which had
1: horrific impacts on our staff. Yeah, it's been one thing to the next thing, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, that's a lot of punches. It is, but luckily we we have
0: our parks that we can go out into, and as much as you know, there were some of them were horrifically impacted by the fires. To see that life come back, I think that's what gives a lot of people who are personally impacted that sort of hope and that literal example and representation of there is hope after that sort of destruction, and and life does go on, and it can be positive And that's sort of, I suppose, we're very lucky that. Particularly with COVID and, and lockdowns, that we were able to because we had to keep going out. Because that's the only places people could go was walk in a park. And so, maintaining facilities, looking after our plants and animals, we had the, the beauty and the joy of being able to go out and, and breathe the air in our parks and, and see our parks. And that certainly helped us. So, I it's think a, it's a real boon as much as it can also be a bit of a heartbreak at the same time.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a mixed bag. But obviously, thank you for your work over the last couple of years. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. For so, all the people who are locked down. Uh, we appreciate having some fresh air. Go and visit. This is it. <laughs> now you mentioned you've got a trip coming up. Did you want to talk about that? Sure, absolutely. So it's called
0: Walking the Thin Green Line, Oceania. So it's a bit of a crazy idea I came up with at the end of 2020, diving back from my parents' place, and it's inspired by Thin Green Line Foundation, uh, which is the charity was the charity arm for the International Ranger Federation and is now a charity in and of itself. So it supports rangers around the world, families of rangers killed on the front line, as well as equipping and training rangers that don't normally have access to that. So the founder, Sean Wilmore, is a very charismatic guy. <laughs> and he's um, he did a lot. And many years ago, he quit his job, mortgaged his house, and went and travelled the world to interview rangers and tell their stories because he met amazing rangers at the World Parks Congress. So for me, I think there's a bit of a gap in understanding in our region and Oceania of what do rangers actually do here? Who are we and who is our region and the world really needs to know that. So I've met so many rangers working in South Australia as a ranger originally, and then also particularly Northern Territory where there was a lot of young early career rangers who were very impacted by their job, and but are absolute legends. So I was like, these the public need to know the amazing people who are rangers, what they do, how we can all help rangers do their job and the importance and the amazing protected areas that we have in this region and to be proud of our region and support our rangers and protected area staff. So I'm taking a year off work from World Ranger Day this year, which is July 31, 2022, to World Ranger Day next year, July 31, 2023, to travel around Oceania, starting at the Royal National Park in Sydney to meet and interview rangers, telling their stories of who they are, how they became a ranger, what they do and the amazing parks they protect. I'll also be talking to schools along the way to connect schools and students with rangers and talk to them about protected areas and, and how they can be a part of that and what rangers do. I'll also be walking a kilometre for every ranger killed on the front line since 2009 when we began recording them because two to three people, three to three rangers around the world are killed every week. So it'll be close to, or we're expecting more than 1,500 rangers will have been killed by the time I commence in World Range Day this year. So it's a long hike, <laughs> I
1: have to say. That is a lot of walking.
0: <laughs> that is. And at the end of it to celebrate the very first Thin Green Line documentary that Sean Wilmore did back in the day to mark 20 years World today Day 2024, I'll be releasing a documentary from the Oceania trip and some interviews with Sean and some of our ambassadors as well, talking about rangers and their experience and, and where things are now 20 years
1: on. Fantastic. That is a significant endeavour. <laughs> yeah. But I probably need to rewind a little bit. I think a lot of listeners and just people in general would probably be surprised to hear that, yeah, A, that rangers are killed at all and, B, that it's that many.
0: Yes, yeah, so, and that we have actually lost some rangers in Australia. There was a ranger just a couple of years ago. he was killed by in a shark attack doing research off the Queensland It's also the environmental officer killed by a farmer here in New South Wales doing his job, and also some rangers are killed a uh, combination of obvious there's more obvious things that people's heads will go to, which is poaching in Africa and being killed by poachers, which is quite often and by and large, the majority of deaths also killed by illegal loggers in Southeast Asia, and poachers in Southeast Asia, illegal fishermen, and um, organised crime in particularly South America, Africa, Southeast Asia. But also being killed by the animals they protect, and on the job injuries in particularly in those countries where they don't given the appropriate training and the equipment and information they need to work safely. So that's why it's so important the work the Thing Green Line does, which involves things like Paramilitary training to support these rangers in preventing poachers from ambushing them and from killing them and their families or burning their houses or impacting them in that way because it's a lot more than perhaps we're very safe in many ways here in Australia but there's also danger in what we do and in many ways it's quite a dangerous job we deal with chainsaws and and firearms and chemicals we're involved in search and rescue we fight wildfires there's a lot of things we do that are, are quite risky and, and we have. Really great training, fantastic equipment and are very well supported. Not everyone has that benefit. So in addition to being killed at work, there's obviously we know we lost over 500 rangers to COVID directly alone and many of them have lost their jobs or all of their income because it was reliant on international tourism, particularly in Africa. So a lot of them are now working to protect areas and deal with poachers without any income for free because they feel it's the right thing to do. So. They're very much hand-to-mouth living for their families. So it's, yeah, it's sort of bringing that sort of thing to light and awareness of of what we face, both particularly for our colleagues overseas, but also in the Oceania region. It's not the easiest or the safest job, but we do our best.
1: (laughs) And it is an important job. What are some of the places that you're going to be visiting? So you're starting in Royal National Park, which I think is Australia's first national park. Yes, it was, yep. that was why it's starting there. Yep. And I know that particularly because Belair
0: National Park, where I used to, my first national park in South Australia that I worked in, it was number two and begrudgingly number two. So we yeah, always invited everyone, we were number two. We're not that far behind the Royal. So the Royal National Park in Sydney was indeed our very first national park and one of the first in the world. Australia was only very narrowly behind America in naming national parks. So something we should be very proud of. So Royal National Park was our first and I believe, I think the third in the world. So, I'll be starting there and working my way north and around Australia, visiting some pretty special places along the way, including Lord Howe Island to kick things off after the Royal. Because New South Wales National Parks actually is responsible for national parks management on Lord Howe Island. Then we go around and try and race against the start of the wet season to get across to Broome, ducking up to Timor Leste for a visit to support their very first national park and rangers up there, who the Tasmanian Rangers actually already raised funds for motorbikes for them through their jobs. It'll be very special to take the Tasmanian rangers there to to meet the people who they supported through their big relay last year. So going around Australia, visiting many of the islands people know, like Kangaroo Island and uh, Fraser Island. and. Well, all of the islands, basically. <laughs> the big ones, so Arnhem Land, the very special parks through Northern Territory and the Kimberley. Some really special ones, I think, down and around up in Australia that are perhaps less well-known. And then I'll be biased, some fantastic ones in South Australia. Obviously, Kangaroo Island. And, yeah, coming around to Victoria and Tasmania, which I'm extremely excited about, uh, to do some good hiking there. And then heading over to New Zealand, from which I'll access Norfolk Island. That's managed by Parks Australia, so that'll be amazing to visit that. And then doing a trip around New Zealand, which I'm just absurdly excited about, really. Apart from being a parkie and loving the national parks, I'm also a geek. So Lord of the Rings and everything just, oh, yes, very, very excited. And then I'll be doing the most difficult part of the trip for me, as someone who does get most sickness, sailing from <laughs> New Zealand up to Tonga, then Fiji, Samoa, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea. And then heading over to the World Ranger Congress in June next year, which is amazingly at Azores, uh, which is Portuguese um, island in the middle of the at an archipelago in the middle of the Atlantic. So it's pretty amazing. Definitely an island theme. And then coming back to finish things off, which is to Sydney and then south to the ACT because you cannot miss ACT or I would be in big trouble. Doing the Highlands and then coming out to the coast again and finishing up in Wilson's Prom. National Park, which is a very, very special national park for Australia as well, and in fact the national park that Shorten and was working at when he came up with the whole idea and where the World Parks Congress was held all those
1: years ago back in 2004. That is epic. It is. It is huge. <laughs> I already feel <filled laughs> tired thinking about it. <laughs> it's that combination of like that is just exhausting to think about, especially like since we haven't been travelling and don't have all those muscles sort of like stretched at the moment. This but is true. It's also really, really cool. Like that sounds like the dream holiday. I don't want to call it a holiday. No, it is in a way. <laughs> one of
0: my colleagues has said, "You know, the more you tell other rangers about this, they're just they're just going to hate you because they mm-hmm. want to do this." So <laughs> like, that's one way to put it. <laughs> but they'll be able to come along too. So some of them will be joining me to uh, be camp mum and uh, help me with things when I'm busy dealing with recording and filming and interviews and live streams and things like that. So having some friendly faces will be great and also for safety reasons. So have a few friends coming along who are pretty fantastic rangers and I'm pretty excited for people to meet them. So it'll be, yeah, it's going to be a, a pretty amazing trip trip for a lifetime um, but also very rewarding because it's just, it's not about me, it's about the rangers. So I'm so excited to see how much it'll change, how we're all connected in the region and how we'll learn about each other and people meet others and and reach out to others and it'll change how we all operate in the region and really that's going to be a game changer for how we work and what we do. So I'm pretty excited for that really as an outcome and for the public to be like, wow, so this is what Rangers do.
1: (laughs) And obviously we'll include like links to the socials and the things so you can follow along with what Amanda's up to and... Obviously, we can't all join in, but we can, <laughs> we, we can do some armchair travel. We don't actually all get to do like every single island.
0: Well, that's it. Well, <laughs> you can plan future visits, um, and you can look at what parks you want to visit, and who you might see, and you know the name of the ranger you might see on park, and say good day. So yeah, it's all about yeah you know, learning about the amazing parks and nothing else. It's really good trip planning
1: to follow it along, basically.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> you, you can inspire a whole um, travel agency afterwards. Yeah, this is it. <laughs> I love it. Speaking of what rangers actually do, which is, you know, one of the great mysteries, I think, for your average person. I, I don't know. I was raised thinking that all rangers did was dig toilets. <laughs> well, that's probably more accurate than most people's thoughts on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think other people think, oh, you just spend all day patting wombats, which no. Just listeners, so we don't pat wombats in general because they're grumpy and that's just not appropriate. Yeah, your, your shins won't like you
0: for it, just saying that now. <laughs> uh, what
1: does an average day at work actually look like for you?
0: <laughs> the most disliked question for a ranger. There's no such thing. It's a possible, the average day. but That sort of actually typifies what a ranger does. There's there's no such thing as an average day for a ranger. So for the kind of ranger I am, a park ranger, who looks after a particular park as a land manager, there's, I suppose, two different kinds of days I have, particularly as a, a ranger in New South Wales, where we're quite office-based and partly field-based because we have field staff our uh, field officers who do a lot of what would be traditional ranger work of cleaning toilets, digging the holes, doing that sort of... Experience. We do that some of that as well when we're able to escape, but during the week, it's sort of writing environmental impact assessment, project plans, planning prescribed burns, Uh, responding to public inquiries, uh, issuing permits, planning and coordinating those pest plant and animal programs, managing volunteers, which is always really fun, working with neighbours and other stakeholders because obviously our parks are not in isolation. We have a lot of neighbours and we all work together on different issues. Attending meetings and training, it's really important for us to coordinate and work together so we're not in silos, particularly as that, you need to think about that landscape scale thing. And working with native title holders is a really big part of our job up here on the north coast, particularly in our area, because we have four big groups of native title holders, so we're very, very lucky to have that. And all of our parks, but I think two, we have close to 50 parks in our area, are all under native title, which is pretty exciting. So that's your typical weekday. <laughs> A lot of calls, a lot of emails, a lot of computer work and enough cake and tea to get you through. We have morning tea Fridays to survive and that's turned into four days a week morning teas these days. (laughs) But uh, weekends is is the fun stuff or, or days when you're able to go out to the field. So weekends is all about looking after visitors and checking on your parks. So it's generally quite an early start, say about seven thirty in the morning, you'll start work, you'll check in with the other staff in the area because we have pretty poor mobile phone signals. So it's important for safety to go who's going to be where, what are we doing? And then you'll visit different campgrounds and day use areas and when there's walks and you'll talk to visitors, check on bookings, make sure everyone's safe and well. And you'll assist the other staff in dealing with the fun things like toilets <laughs> as well as uh other infrastructure that might need checking. And then we also do things like uh, check if there's with full compliance problems, sometimes we have cameras and things like that. So we might check uh, trouble areas where we have vandalism or ongoing problems that we need to check cameras and change batteries, that sort of thing. And we also do a little bit of uh, responding to emergencies. So you might get a call from the regional duty officer to go we have a whale stranding or a dolphin beaching or something and so or there's an issue with a turtle or the public harassing an injured animal on the coast which is of particular obviously critical importance to intervene so we'll often be tasked to do that sort of thing. Also if there's a missing person then we'll respond to search and rescue or if there's obviously fire or some other emergency just like fire, police, ambulance, we are part of those first responders and often have quite a critical role in assisting those emergency services and SES and others getting to a location and working with them and resolving something. So we're often, we're that first phone call if it's if they don't remember to call O first or we're, or we're phone call number two if they did remember. So that's often, you're always waiting for that, that unknown on the weekend and allowing for space for that <laughs> because it always happens at four o'clock, between four and five <laughs> There will be something completely random which you just sort of left going, and how do I respond to that? So that's sort of the weekend. At the, but the beauty of it is you, you get to escape the office, you're out in the park, you're chatting to visitors who are really enjoying themselves, talking to people, having a great time. You get to occasionally do some research and animal things as well to check your you know, check your trails and, and audit things and it's just a wonderful time because you get to see your park and um, really get immersed in it and without feeling guilty about not checking those emails but then there's also the cleaning up and, and part of your day as well is you have to prepare for anything so preparing your vehicle at the start of the weekend is always a bit of a job because you know, you know chainsaws and everything that goes with that and anything that could possibly happen that your vehicle gets stuck or there's a tree across the road or someone is rescuing or whatever you have all of your kit and during fire season all of your fire gear so you end up you know it's like you're going on a two-week holiday really but to make sure everything's ready and then you can finally go out and then at the end of the weekend is backing all of that up again and making sure the vehicle's ready for the week so it's uh not quite as glamorous as people think but yeah generally you will see staff having a big grin on their face on the weekends because it's a, it's a great time out in the park with um with people enjoying our parks too which is one of the best things
1: that's the bit where you remember why you're doing all of that paperwork.
0: Oh, exactly. I mean, it's, people think, you know, it's when you're cuddling that koala or, you know, when you're rescuing that animal or something like that. But really, the, the biggest impact that you can have as a ranger is inspiring the next generation. So that moment when you're speaking to a family who's in the campground and maybe the young child asks a question about an animal that they saw and you can answer that question and talk to them and they're like, oh, what do you do? Oh, you're a ranger. And their parents sort of explain who you are and their eyes go wide and you're talking about an animal or a plant or something they saw on a walk and just that light bulb goes on and you know that for the rest of their lives, every decision they make will be, if unconsciously, coloured by that experience. and they will take that on board. And though they might not be unbelievably environmentally minded for the rest of their life, they might not end up being a ranger, but it'll always be there. They'll have made that connection with the environment, which is a really special thing and it's a special moment when you see that. And it's uh, also really great. as a a female ranger when you see little girls go oh look it's a girl ranger mummy. you know it's (laughs) it's great for them to to see that and go oh i could do that you know oh i'm seeing a a female ranger with a chainsaw doing that and the and the male ranger standing there and supporting and men moving the logs and things or oh, the female ranger changing the tire. you know it's something it's kind of great for kids to see what we do so that's where you really ultimately your biggest impact in, in making a difference in the world is those moments as much as you want to pull weeds whenever you see them, it's just, you know, you could do that every day for your life and you would not achieve a minute by comparison, to, uh, you know, talking to kids and, and the visitors and, and helping them connect with the space that they're in.
1: How did you get from high school to where you are now? Like what what was the plan when you left high school? Was it to be a ranger?
0: It was not. It was to be a chef.
1: What kind of chef?
0: <laughs> Fine dining chef. I actually have a qualified chef. I didn't do that. <laughs> So I did an apprenticeship straight out of school because in uh, year 9 or 10, year 10, we had a subject on uh, hospitality, and our teacher, her husband was a chef, and she had such a passion for food and fine dining and how you could really change people's perception of food experience. She used to be a a fine dining waitress, so the whole class ended up in hospitality. Many of them are top chefs today in Melbourne and overseas. So she kind of inspired the whole class, and that's how I became a chef, even though I didn't have the uni places on, on hold, uh, much to the shock of all my friends who were going to uni, like, what? You're doing an apprenticeship? I uh, absolutely loved that. And in my second year of my apprenticeship, I came across the Slow Food Movement. Because one of the chefs who was my instructors, won a scholarship with them. And he did a presentation and I was like, Wow, that chefs that make a difference. You know, it's good, clean, and fair food. It's sustainable. It's ethical. It's it's about making food. You know how it's connected to culture and biocultural diversity and all those sorts of things. And I was just like, wow, I have to I have to go and do that. So I actually went to the University of Gastronomic Science in Italy uh, as soon as I could finish my apprenticeship. I um, applied and went over there with the very small amount of money I could muster together after an apprenticeship and managed to stay for a year. Unfortunately, I couldn't get a, a scholarship. But you know, it came back, broke, but loved it, and whilst I was over there, we launched the Youth Food Movement, which was an amazing experience. I was part of the, the committee who kicked that off, and we had youth from all over the world come together to launch that. And as part of that, I was approached to run a workshop for the Women's and Children's Group of the United Nations Commission for Sustainable Development, they saw the opportunity to have a group of youth come together and said, well, could you run a workshop looking at these issues which were loosely related to food production, which was what was, it? It was desertification, Africa, the impacts of urbanisation, uh, rural development and things that the Europeans were like, what on earth are those? The Australian could do this. She knows what deserts are. <laughs> <laughs> so I jumped at the opportunity because my that's sort of where my knowledge was in a way, being loving geography and having father was who was an agronomist and whose background was actually in, in geospatial science and remote sensing. So I ran that workshop and was so inspired by these young people from around the world who had traveled all the way to Europe from remote areas of Brazil, for example, who just came to learn how they could save their cultures, practices and, and their food practices for future generations. And I was like, wow, this is, I'm just a chef. Like, <laughs> I love being a chef, but am I really making a difference in the world? And that's been very important to me to be that change that I want to see in the world. So as much as charity starts at home, so does sustainability. So I chose to come back and study natural resource management to understand how we can Fix what well, improve how we do things before we go telling other countries how they need to do things and sustainability and how they need to manage their natural resources. And during that degree at the University of Queensland, one of the subjects I did was it was a fantastic subject. It was just basically a big field trip where you visited national parks all around Queensland and then did an exam and an assignment at the end. So it's like the best course in this uni degree, and it was it was great anyway. But we visited. Ely beach and there was a ranger there who was an absolute legend and the whole class the whole course were like okay yeah this is this is cool this would actually be amazing to be a ranger and that sort of planted the seed of actually you know what you can arrange can we make a difference i really didn't know much about rangers to that point but barry noble he was amazing and so passionate and so connected to his community and made such a big difference and he, he just was the job you know he absolutely loved it he couldn't contain himself he was practically steve in front of us like he just adored it and he strongly disagreed on one point with our lecturer which we all did as well and completely agreed with barry and all of us actually rebelled and answered the final question on the exam the opposite to what our lecturer wanted <laughs> us to do as a way of rebelling and all of us got very badly marked on that but it was like just yes, we <laughs> Barry is amazing and he's completely right that, you know, rangers need to understand the community and need to be connected and and far more than just simply knowledge of pest plants and animals, they need to understand the importance of what they do and have that context of the community. So that really planted the seed. And so applying for different jobs, I was very open-minded. I just wanted to be in a position which would be able to influence and make a difference and I saw the graduate ranger program in South Australia, which is an amazing program, which is on course for the moment. But most, and I say most of the, the rangers in South Australia are now from former graduates in terms of the best rangers and those who are now in senior positions. So it was amazing where you do it's two year program and you do four stints of six months as what they call rotations. And you move around different areas of South Australia and you get all the training you could possibly need in those two years. And you see three different regions. And you also do one stint in the head office where you come to truly understand what the entire department does and your role and the role of rangers in the context of everything that the environment does, which is really important so that, you know, you're not screaming about getting this money or that, that you're, you're a part of a much bigger machine and that really helps you become a better ranger and a better future potential executive. So I ended up being a ranger from that and actually um, I applied for a lot of grad programs and the first week I was in, the graduate role. I My first stint was in Adelaide Hills. I was very lucky. It was amazing Got to work under Kerry Villiers. He was a fantastic ranger. He was actually poached to Victoria because she was so good. And I got a call from BHP because I had applied for their graduate program. And they have one environmental position, grad position each year in Australia, one. And I just missed out on an interview and they called me up again and said, well, actually, do you want it? And I'd only been in the job three days and I already knew. I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a ranger. <laughs> but I went back inside, and Kerry was like, "Are you insane? Why did you turn that down?" But <laughs> at the same time, it was—I just knew it was right for me. I was meant to be a ranger, and it was, you know, it's fantastic. And a lot of people probably wonder how on earth did you turn down like an eighty-five thousand dollars job straight out of uni for? A, yeah, I won't say how low we were paid in South Australia as a grads, but yeah, substantially less. But it was just—it just felt so right. So that's sort of how. I became a ranger. I never intended to be and never even considered being a ranger literally until my final year of uni as a mature age student. So it was, it was pretty far down the path, which occasionally I do feel very bad about because there's a lot of people who spend their whole lives trying to become rangers and I sort of fell into it almost by accident. But it's, yeah, it's the best job in the world and I absolutely, absolutely love it and, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't change it for the world it's uh it's not easy it's one of the toughest jobs out there it can be thankless it can be very emotionally impacting when you're euthanizing animals uh when you're dealing helping people who've lost loved ones on park or rescuing someone having the worst day of their lives like it's not easy seeing your parks you know incinerated in unprecedented wildfires or wiped up by floods or seeing animals suffer for those it's, it's not easy or seeing your colleagues suffer like it's it's challenging, but at the same time, it's very rewarding and so critically important for the future that you know that every day that you do it, no matter what it is, you're making a difference for the future and that's, that's what gets you up in the morning.
1: At 7.30 on a Sunday. One yeah, night, it's earlier. brutal
0: and your body knows it's a Sunday. Like I am a tea drinker, but Sunday on weekend, I do drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you need it sometimes.
1: <laughs> that is quite an adventure from high school. It is a bit, yeah,
0: it's quite the windy <laughs> path. I've never won for straight lines, I have to say, and but uh, I suppose i'm I also feel very blessed that uh, at every single intersection or at every time there was a decision to be made, I always knew the right run to make and that it felt right. Sometimes it was a big leap, you know going over to to Italy without knowing if I would be able to stay for the full degree, putting all my money into it when I was just a chef, I was fairly broke, hadn't even moved out of home yet you know it's there's always the correct leap. For me, I mean, moving from uh, Queensland down to South Australia for the Ranger Program and then to Northern Territory in Central Australia and then over to here for the dream job in this part of the world. They're always calculated leaps, and the right ones, whereas most people never feel that confident in their decisions. So I'm so lucky in that windy path, but I always knew the right step that was the one to take next. And you're going on yet another
1: giant leap as well. Yeah, I know.
0: Right? Like
1: <laughs> most people wouldn't take a year. I mean, obviously it's it's adjacent to your actual career, but a lot of people <laughs> would just be terrified about taking a year off. They'd be like, I'll fall behind. <laughs> something something will happen.
0: I know. I was a bit like, oh, gosh, yeah, a whole thing broke all over again. That's going to be fun. And then obviously my uh, team leader ranger and area manager were less than impressed initially (laughs) because one of our other rangers is a fantastic advocate for the Thing Green Lion Foundation too and spent a lot of her career taking extra little bits of time off work to do that. And they're like, these passionate rangers, advocates, they just take your time off work to do great things. (laughs) So, But it gave them a fair warning. So, yeah, I mean it's obviously, again, a bit of a calculated leap, but I'm also very blessed to have a lot of, belief in me as a ranger from my immediate supervisor and my area manager that you know I couldn't be more supported or feel more valued than I do in my role here obviously I've had great supervisors in all of my jobs but sometimes you know you, you work somewhere and you're like wow that's just like family so I know that I can come back and it's amazing So I don't have any concerns about my future. So I'm very blessed. So it's very much a calculated leap.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, there is a parachute. Absolutely. (laughs) While you're here, do you want to share any particular big myths or misconceptions that the public has about being a ranger? (laughs) We could uh, could be a whole other podcast, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll save that for the trip maybe. We'll do little snapshots of this is not what we do, this is what we actually do. I suppose uh, there's a bit of a mixture. So on some sides of of that question is people who think rangers are sort of generally unskilled and don't have qualifications, and you know they just dig holes or rescue animals, but they're not necessarily that well educated or that informed, or they don't do anything particularly important. And then it, that, that's where you sort of want to tell them, well, actually, some some rangers have like post doctorate educations and Choose to dig holes or put signs in because it's a really great part of our job. But that knowledge that they bring, which is why I did, I did honours at university, was because I think it's important to understand the science which underpins what you do as a ranger. So, a lot of us have, well, everyone just wows well as a ranger. And in most states, you have to have a degree and are often have life experience as well before you become a ranger. And then, I suppose, the other side of the coin is people who think that we don't really understand what goes on in our parks, particularly those who live next to our parks or, or something. And so I suppose it's important for people to know that we are generalists. We are jack-of-all-trades. We have to expect it to sort of know how to, to use a chainsaw and deal with animals and, and spray things and uh, clear drains and manage roads as well as do big environment impact assessments and deal with cultural heritage and very high-level planning and policy. So we have to be a bit of everything for everyone. So if you do ask us if we know what that tree is <laughs> – I, for one, am probably not going to be able to say what it is very well because I've moved to too many states. But also we'll have different backgrounds. So I'm a geographer by trade. That's uh, my bread and butter. So I can tell you how the landscapes change over time. But I'm probably not going to be as accurate on that particular species of tree. Unless they're orchids, I'm pretty good with those. So I suppose, yeah, the misconception is people have very particular ideas of what we do when we really we do everything. So nothing is beneath us we'll clean toilets we'll to varying degrees of success we'll you know dig out barbecues we'll deal with compliance so we have to deal with some pretty sticky situations there including organized crime and crops and very challenging as well as the smallest things such as people who are fortunately doing the wrong thing on park right through to working with researchers and and doing ecology studies and um, impact assessments so there's we do a lot of different things and so I suppose that's one of the misconceptions that, that people have no idea what we do, <laughs> and sort of make assumptions based on their knowledge of what they would do if they were a ranger, sort of based on what they've seen. It's like, oh, they clean toilets and find people. It's like, no, no, no. There's like, there's a lot more to it. <laughs> so that's probably the biggest thing. But that's one of the things of uh, the trip is is part of that is raising awareness for sort of. What we do and how that changes based on the park, the location, that particular ranger's role, and and the community that they're in. Sometimes it's much more community focused what they do, as opposed to you know facilities focused or visitor focused. So, yeah, it it really changes. But the misconception is more that people make up their own mind about rangers do because we're not very good at promoting what we actually do.
1: <laughs> and that that could just be because it's really hard because, you know, you can't easily answer what you do.
0: It is. Like in Um, one day kind of thing. Yeah. And we're not as visible. I think it's back there. That's one of the big things is that in the 70s and 80s, there was, on average, uh, fewer parks and more staff. So, for example, in Belair National Park, where I worked, I think all up, there was 10 staff members there who would be called rangers. Now, there was one and a half when I was there. So, Uh, There was one main ranger and then I assisted that main ranger and looked at the other park. So that's why people go, oh, we never see staff. They're never in the park. They're not doing anything. And it's like, well, actually, we are. We're just not as thick on the ground. So you might not see us when you're there, but we may very well be in the next trail or the next track or off in the middle of nowhere dealing with something that you're not potentially aware of or we're there during weekdays or very early in the morning when you're still sleeping in your tent or, you know, doing things just that are not perhaps visible. So that's one of the things is that there's a, a misconception around if you don't see rangers much when you visit a park, oh, they're never there, there's no rangers here, they never look after it. But actually we are, we're just kind of hidden. I like bandicoots, we like to hide, you know. <laughs> you might not know a lot of our small mammals are there, but they are, they're just not as obvious. So we're a little bit the same where we are out and about doing things, but you just might not see us yourself. Uh, but if you're quiet and
1: you're nice, we might just come out of the, <laughs> the bush and say hi. <laughs> exactly like a bandicoot. And <laughs> honestly, like the number of times my parents will come back from like a six week trip, and the one thing they'll tell me is, We met a ranger at this place.
0: Um. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. They get very excited. That is really lovely. People just love meeting and, and you and talking about all the things that they've seen in the park or asking all these questions. I mean, that's really awesome. So it is great. If you do see, a staff member from national parks, then you know, say good day and um, say hi and say thank you, which is always nice. It really makes a huge difference for staff. We don't often hear the nice things. We don't often get the thank yous. We're generally at the other end of the phone getting the opposite of that about something someone's rather unhappy about, such as our our kangaroos eating something in their yard or, or our possums eating their roses so that's that's generally what we're we're dealing with as a public interaction so yeah um if you can say good day and just be nice that would be absolutely lovely
1: let your parkies know that uh, you appreciate them and take (laughs) your own rubbish home that yes please (laughs) leave no trace (laughs) is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to share
0: i don't think so i think we covered quite a lot of ground really apart from i suppose if people would like to know, I suppose, what a skills a ranger needs if they need to, you know, study a ranger-specific degree to be a ranger. It's really not like that's quite open. So, as I said earlier, we all have different degree backgrounds. Some people can be in ecotourism, others could be in geographical science, like myself. Others could be in the college or the more traditional environmental management uh, qualifications. Really, it's about having just a relevant degree and a really good sense of humour. And it's really about your capability as an individual, being resilient and flexible. And if you're considering being a ranger because you love animals and want to work with them or because there's a really specific thing, you might want to take a step back and think about what would be great to do as a volunteer and what would be great to do as a job. Because sometimes as a ranger, it's not always going to be you know, looking after animals or really obvious and really direct uh, positive things on the environment. Sometimes there's a few degrees of separation. So, just loving being out there in parks, just loving the whole idea of being a ranger and everything that we do, and just being open to a whole range of things. And if you love change and if you love diversity in your work and if you love learning, then a ranger role is absolutely for you because that's what it's all about. It's, you know, no day is the same and it's never relaxed. You never become comfortable. <laughs> it's always changing and always challenging, but that really is the beauty of it. And I think, you know, you'd be bored in any other role if you love being a ranger. So um, if you consider agreeing it, make sure it is something you'd really love to do. So volunteer with an organisation such as National Parks or one of our volunteer groups such as Friends of Parks and get a taste for it and meet a ranger and get a feel for what's happening in your local area and just have a go because if, you're, if you don't want to clean toilets, if you don't want to pull weeds, if you don't want to do paperwork, then you might want to rethink it. Maybe you'd be a field officer or maybe you'd be good at policy, something different. So, yeah, there's a uh, whole gamut of things you might do, but in terms of skills that you might need, if I was talking to someone at a careers fair, it really comes down to it. as long as you have a relevant degree, really good enthusiasm, and a good sense of humor, you, you, you're set.
1: And you're willing to pick up a chainsaw at some point, probably.
0: Well, that, I mean, that's actually one of the fun bits, but uh, <laughs> probably you're willing to deal with toilets when ultimately campers don't have very good diets and it uh, can be very challenging. Yeah. And sometimes you do need a fire unit on your vehicle to deal with the consequences of someone's
1: stay. People do weird things
0: oh yeah sometimes you do want to walk over and go what did you eat (laughs) to be perfectly honest i'm just amazed please explain
1: (laughs) (laughs) and on that note to start wrapping up have you got a shout out for us is there someone or someone's who thinks just doing an awesome job and you'd like to give some virtual high fives to? I
0: would have to go to the Thing Green Lion Foundation and everything that they do for rangers around the world. They're they're pretty amazing. Obviously, my trip will be raising funds for what they do, but look out for them on and put World Ranger Day July 31 into your calendars and check out the au and have a look what we do and you can support
1: rangers uh, on that day because they're just absolutely amazing what they do in supporting rangers. And obviously we will be giving shout-outs on July 31 and reminding you because I don't expect you to remember between now and then, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ranger Amanda. All the best with your amazing walk and we look forward to like watching, I guess, from afar. Thank you very much. It's been great chatting to you. thanks for tuning in if you like this episode please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well and if you want to support avid Research this year that would be amazing uh, you can buy us a coffee head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment thanks so much for listening you're a legend